a CTV original podcast produced by Bell Media Studios. This podcast contains adult themes and violence. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Marcy Ian, and this is Taken Abroad, Episode 3, Life as a Hostage. You've got to control your emotions. If you're one of these people that are hysterical and pleading for your life all the time and crying and screaming, you actually become a pain in the neck. You may be the first one that they kill or cut your hair off or your finger off because they're sick to death of you making a noise all the time. That's Dane Carey. He knows how to get kidnapped victims back from the most dangerous places on earth. In a few minutes, he'll give us an inside look at the business of hostage taking. But first, let's get back to Kaduna, Nigeria, where Canadian Julie Mulligan is held captive by two men and a machine gun. In the third night, all three of us were sleeping and um, the boss came in and woke us up. And I got into the back of the car again, laid on the, this time I laid right on the floor of the car while the two boys sat in the back. I started to cry. For the second time in three days, Julie Mulligan is taken. Forced to lay at the feet of her kidnappers, she has no idea where she's being driven. We got to a small house. There was a gate in front of the house. So we walked past the house, past this white truck that was parked in the driveway that it had broken down. Walked into this little tiny house and sitting on the couch on this mustard color couch leather was a really menacing Nigerian man. And across from him in a chair was a young woman, beautiful Nigerian. And when we walked in, so it was the boss, the passenger, Oyo, Anthony, and me, we completely filled the room. The boss took me right away into the small little bathroom that there was. There was a sink and a toilet and then just a spout for the water. He gave me some stuff, I think it was DEET, and he sa- I said, what is this? And he said, it's to wash the parasites that might be underneath your skin. Because in the outdoor house, there were lizards running around, a lot of lizards running around, and um, a lot of bugs, scorpions, like just, there was everything there. I washed with that, and then he showed me the bedroom that I would be sleeping in. There were two bedrooms in this tiny little house. And when he opened the door, I could see that the girl's clothing was hanging from just a hook on the wall. And that's when I really went into this mode of, I need to figure out how the hell I'm gonna get out of here. So the girl slept in the living room. She slept with the boys. And I slept in the bed by myself. And I knew that I needed to be smart. I knew that I needed to figure out how I'm going to get out of there. Was there a point where you thought, you know, I'm not going to make this easy for them, you know, one bit. 
I'm going to fight. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get back home. I wouldn't say that I fought. It was more of a mental fight. It. it was a game. Every single scenario. Every single thing that I could think about, I thought about. Every single thing. The first morning, the girl brought me a piece of bread and some hot water with some stuff in it. Like, it might be like Ovaltine or something. And there was a spoon. So when I was done eating the bread, I kept the spoon back. There were um, bars on the window in my bedroom. There were bars in the little living room. There were bars in the bathroom all across the windows. And there were big, heavy, dark curtains over top of all the doors. But the bars looked like they had been put on recently, like it looks like inferior cement. So I held back my spoon and used my spoon to try to dislodge. You know, like in Alcatraz? Mm -hmm. That's exactly, I thought it was Clint Eastwood. I can't get the picture out of my mind of this tiny woman planning an Alcatraz-like escape. It makes me wonder, are there proven tactics that can help a captive survive? I called one of the world's top kidnap and ransom experts to find out. I can break anybody. I can break anybody physically. But if I can't break their mind, that are always a threat to me, either a threat of escape or retaliation. But once I break their, their mind, I have got those people. They will do anything I want them to do. Dane Carey is a retired sergeant major who served in the SAS, the UK's elite anti-terrorism unit. Today, he's an instructor at AKE Group, where he teaches clients how to survive captivity. We're going to start in a couple seconds, okay? Yeah, that's fine. He took my call in Hereford, England. So if somebody is targeted and then actually abducted, how do you train them to survive? Well, the first thing we teach them is you want to try and get them to lie to you. You want them to, you want to humanize yourself to them. Then you can use that uh, as an aid either to, to survive longer or even to escape. Because if you if you read up to them like, oh, yeah, you get outside with me and we'll see who, who, who's good then. Or if you're one of these people that are hysterical and pleading for your life all the time and crying and screaming, you're the first person they will use as an example because they know you on a phone screaming and shouting and crying and pleading for your life is going to have more impact than someone who's not. They may use you. You may be the first one that gets tortured. You may be the first one that gets killed. Dane says humanizing yourself and controlling your emotions are fundamental to staying alive in captivity. But he tells me, in the worst circumstances, only one thing can ensure survival. I, I, I tell people, you've got to have a positive mind. Have a good, positive mental attitude and decide, you know, don't give up. Don't give up hope. Resilience is important. Resilience is very important. Don't ever give up. And I teach that my students on the courses. And I teach that um, from day one. If I'd have given up, and I know I'd be dead about at, at least eight or nine times now. I know that for a fact. So don't ever give up. Don't ever give up hope. You know, hope's always there. As long as you're alive, there's a good chance you're going to come out alive. And all the people I've gone into, either when I've done the drop and picked them, dropped the money and then picked up the people that's been uh, released, 
uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Ricardo, who was a cameraman with me in, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and he was kidnapped. And he, went, he was with the same group, ISIS, that beheaded uh, David Haynes and James Foley. And he was released, and he went through five or six mock executions. So I know this for a fact, what it's like. Um, and, and how they survived was having that positive attitude that, yeah, things are bad, but they, have a, they can't take away the freedom of thought. They can't take away your mind. They can't take away your spirit, and they can't take away your soul. Day three, when is there communication? Every time that the boss came, there was communication. So every time the boss showed up, mm-hmm. he wanted you to call? Yes. The boss came morning and night. John picks up the phone and recites the messages scribbled by the RCMP. I remember that I sat there and I didn't go off script that much because it was drilled into me. Do not say something that will upset Julie. So you couldn't tell her you loved her? That I could do. I, I always, uh, nobody will ever stop me saying, I love you, love, love you, Julie, love you, love you. And she always said, love you. If they didn't grab the phone away from her. A lot of times the phone was grabbed away from her. After I phoned John, I started to cry. And I thought, that's enough of that. I can't, no more. So that was when I totally put John and the kids out. Like I never fantas I wasn't thinking about them anymore, just laying in bed thinking about them. It was a survival them. tactic. It was. And that's, that's when, that's immediately when I went into my mode of, I'm going to develop a relationship right now with these boys. And I showed the boys pictures of my kids, stepsons, grandkids, John. Showed them just so that they could get an idea that I was a mother and a wife, that I was more than just someone that they had been hired to look after. Julie emailed me the photos that she showed Anthony and Oyo. One is of Julie's teenagers, Stephanie and Mackenzie. They're being cute, kind of mugging for the camera. Here's a picture of John and Julie on vacation. They're dressed, ready for a bike ride with a small village and vast jungle behind them. And here's another one of John and Julie. This time they're at home, dressed for a night out pressed together so tight, there isn't even a millimeter between them. These pictures tug at my heartstrings. But how do they affect Julie's young captors? Oyo, after seeing the pictures, he called me auntie. Really? After seeing the pictures of your children? Yes, he called me auntie, and that is a sign of respect for an older woman in Nigeria from a younger person. So he still had the gun, but they had some respect for me because I was older. You had kids kind of similar in age, right? So when you saw them, what went through your mind? The younger one, who I called Tony, that's what he told me his name was, he had this sense of bravado about him. He had the gun, you know, and I thought, I have a kid, 17 years old, just like you. I know what that bravado means. I could see kind of through that. And then Oyo, who was about 23, he was 
extremely uh, religious. And every time that he took a drink, he would pray. Every time he put anything in his mouth, he would pray. Did you ask them what they were planning on using this money for? The younger one, Anthony, was planning to return to school. At least that's what he said. And the older one, Oyo, who had such a strong accent, I had no idea what his name really was, but that's what I called him. He had the shirt on his back. I was positive that was it. He was very poor. He just needed money to survive. Do you think that solidified, if that's the right word, the relationship, the bond that you were trying to build? Absolutely. And you used that? And I used that. Yeah, I definitely used that. Julie's connection with her captors pays off. Later in the day, as the house swells with heat, Anthony and Oyo leave her alone for the first time. That's when Julie dares to make her first move. I wanted to explore. I wanted to go into the guy who lived in the house. I wanted to go into his bedroom and just kind of check it out. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go into the living room. There was a door there. But the doors were really creaky. So I found this lanolin that was on the in the other bedroom. And I rubbed that on the hinges of the doors. And uh, that kind of backfired on me because one time I was standing on the bed trying to look over top of the wall through the window. And I had the window open and I was hoping to reach my hand out to wave. And the girl came in and I didn't hear her come in because there were no sounds from the hinges. She came in and she says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm so hot. I said, I just need some air. I'm just up here getting fresh air. So I just pretended and I got my mouth right up to the window and I I just like, I said, I just need some fresh air. And she said, close that window. And I said, please. And she said, close it. They will beat me. She's been missing in Nigeria for five days. John has turned his home into Julie's kidnap control center. He tells me every minute is engineered around one thing. We had about five laptops on news, paying attention to what was going on. That was the other thing. When that phone rang, that house went into silence. When is the next time you get to talk to John? The next time I called him was the next day when the boss came back. And same thing, asked, when are you coming with the money? When are you going to send the money? She would quickly say, send it now, John. And why are you taking so much time? The RCMP, they were trying to delay time, trying to get information. And what was John saying? We're working on it. It was very short conversation always, and then the boss took the phone away. Every call is analyzed for background sounds, like trains, planes, other people's voices, clues that could tell them who has taken Julie, where is she, and if her health is deteriorating. Mackenzie and I would always try to listen and just hear her voice. Um, she didn't sound sick. I, I think everyone was worried about her malaria medication. She has asthma. She's allergic to literally anything with fur or fuzz. <laughs> So, I mean, it's a scary world. Hearing her mother's voice brings a moment of relief, 
but not knowing when they will hear her again is excruciating. It's a tactic used by captors to make you pay up. Silence is a weapon that they will use. The biggest thing is that you don't know whether your son or daughter or husband or wife is, is alive or not, especially when deadlines come on. And they will come up to deadlines and say, if you haven't paid anything by 12 o'clock in two days' time or 48 hours, and we are going to cut their finger off or we're going to execute them. And as that deadline comes, you're going crazy. The thing about the victim is they know they're alive. Sometimes they don't know whether they're going to live, but at least they know they're alive at that point. You don't know that. And this is what kidnappers play. The negotiations are all in the hands of the kidnappers because we, we can't contact them. They will use what we call ghost emails. They will use uh, burner phones that once they've used them, they throw them away. And, and, and so they will say, you'll hear from us. And then... You may not hear anything for 10 days or two weeks or six weeks. Then you might get the next contact. And this is all psychological games because they want you in the family to be desperate that you will do anything you can to, to save your loved ones. And they also think because you're in America or Canada or anywhere else, that, you, that you're a cash cow and you will do anything. You'll sell your house, you'll sell, you'll sell your You'll sell all your possessions to try and get money to release your your loved ones. You get up, you wait for the call, you talk to the kidnappers, and then everything would start all over again. After the calls, my dad would break down always, cry, look for support, frustrated, frustrated that he can't do nothing. Oh, awful. It just got more and more awful. That poor guy, in between the phone calls, it's massive breakdown. Maybe a little bit of food, maybe a small nap, and then another breakdown. One of the people finally got a hold of my doctor and said he needs something to sleep with. My doctor got gave them something for you know, half a dozen pills to help me sleep. I didn't take any because I was scared I wouldn't wake up when the phone rang. Did you allow yourself to go there to actually think, what if I never see my mom again? What if she doesn't make it? Yeah. Just thinking of, oh my God, my mom might not make it back from this. It just made me angry. I was just, I started pushing people away. The stress on Julie's children starts to show, and the hostage negotiators take notice. Steph and Mackenzie were sitting there. The RCMP brought me upstairs and he said, is there a place that the kids can go to? And I said, why? And he said, listen to me. He says, I've been this route before. One of the dangers can be Julie in a panic. We don't know what state she's going to be in. And I really think it would be wise if the kids wouldn't hear that. That's hard to hear. And I said, I don't, I, I don't want that. How did they feel? I, I think, you know, even today, they, they felt like they were shunned away. But I didn't know what to do. Steph, you're told you have to go. Mm-hmm. What goes through your mind immediately? Are you agreeable? Are you not? 
I think everybody could see that it was hard on us. Um, but there was nothing that they could do to fix it. I mean, John can it's not his fault. He couldn't be more available for us. I think he feels guilty about that now, but there's nothing that he could have done at that time. I mean, he had to be there. He had to be answering the phone. Day eight, the kids have moved out of the house. On the phone, negotiation reduces the price of ransom by thousands of dollars. But this leaves the kidnappers frustrated and they get Julie to start calling everyone she can to get the money. They're calling the government. They're calling Sun Life, where I worked. They're calling Rotary. I even reached out to my friend, Charmaine. I'm Charmaine Hammond, and I'm Julie Mulligan's longtime best friend. She was a little nervous. And I basically asked her if she was okay. And my other question, are you alone? You know, she would have said, yes, I'm alone. I can talk. Then I maybe would have said a little more. She was, you know, she was a little bit panicked. The kidnappers are desperate. And that worries the RCMP. Brad was concerned. He was afraid about um, who held her. And if they had the money to keep her. I'll never forget how concerned they were that she wasn't going to be sold to another group because it would be like starting all over again from their point of view. Sold to another group. That had never crossed my mind. I asked Dane Carey how often kidnappers sell their victims. That happens a lot. Kidnapping now is a multinational business. Can you describe how it functions as a real criminal enterprise? Now, I was dealing with a, a kidnap not so long ago, and a criminal gang kidnapped uh, this oil worker. They were after a couple of Americans and a Canadian, but for some reason that day, they'd, um, there was something wrong with one of the pumps, and they had to stay behind. The gang that kidnapped them was a criminal gang in that area, and they were sold on to ISIS. And that's how it works. So you get these criminal gangs, they don't care who they are, who they, they kidnap. Because to them, it's a lot of money. And then once they're in the terrorist group or the, the main kidnap group, then that's where the problem is. Because they've already got their setup further, if you like, behind the lines, deep in their territory where they can control you. Because to them, life doesn't matter. And people do pay. RCMP warned John the longer Julie is captive, the more likely she will be sold to another group. To get Julie home, they must take back control. The RCMP said um, we've got some difficult information that we got to uh, have you do. And I said, uh, yeah, okay, what is it? He says, the kidnappers are calling everyone. We are trying to teach them just to call us, and they're not doing that. And uh, he said, you can't pick up the phone anymore. John is gutted by the officer's demand. His son, Greg, stands next to him. The RCMP advised uh, me and my dad that nobody could answer the phone. We weren't getting the answers that they needed. Um, there needed to be a little bit of, we needed to put the ball in their court. Watching my father, uh, very, very heartbreaking. Day nine. The RCMP employ one last negotiation tactic, the weapon of silence. 
And your immediate thought was what? Go, what are you talking about? I can't talk to my wife. And he goes, no. Surrounded by Julie's things in the home they share, John must make an agonizing decision. Should he or shouldn't he answer Julie's next call? I had walked to the front of this house and peeked through the gate. There was a guy on the other side, and I jumped because I was so shocked to see anyone standing there. And Oyo saw this. So he came and he pushed me back into where I was supposed to be. I wasn't supposed to be up there at all. And he stood with the machine gun. And I said to him, I said, you're not going to shoot the police if they come. And he said, I will. Kidnapping is a capital offense and I'm not going down alone. So I understood he was definitely the boss. And he definitely, if he needed to, he would kill me. But I knew that time was getting short. So they gave me the phone and I called John. But John never picks up. On the next episode of Taken Abroad, fearing the worst, John makes a risky reversal on paying ransom. So you had decided to do the money drop? Yes. And in Kaduna, a call to the kidnappers causes chaos. And then Oyo ran in with the machine gun. And I thought, this is probably, this is the end of it. Taken Abroad is written and produced by Charlie Smith. Sound production by Elizabeth Kay. Kelly Peckham is our field director. Visual researchers are Elise Forster and Blake Glassbergen. Original theme music by Nick Fowler. And the executive producer is Kelly McEwen.